Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word and thank you for just the way that you have revealed yourself to us and revealed ourselves to us through your scripture. I pray that as we approach this today that your spirit and your church would um, just be a reflection of and, and a testimony to the truth of your word. Help us to uh, navigate this today with um, open minds and open hearts so we can be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we have the Bible. What does that mean? What does it mean to have a Bible? My hope as your pastor is that uh, you fall in love with Scripture. And as you fall in love with Scripture, you will see your life will be transformed. You will have a, a place to spend time with God in His Word, growing and strengthening your faith. And um, I was just talking to someone from first service about how much they appreciated like this type of teaching in a, on a Sunday morning. And I told them, I, part of my unction to do this comes from me, uh, 17 years working in the, in the IT industry, but for about 15 years going to church every Sunday and not really growing. And I never really personally engaged with Bible study. Um, but I was around church long enough to feel like I was some type of authority on how churches should be run. <laughs> but as far as intimate uh, digging into what Scripture actually has for us, um, I, didn't, I didn't have that in my life. And I used to blame the preacher or whatever the preacher. The preacher's never taught us that. But now that I've grown up a little bit, I realize... Uh, it's silly for me to blame the preacher, and, and it probably wasn't that the preacher wasn't saying it, it's that I wasn't hearing it. Because uh, there's often times when, uh, you know, someone will come up to me and tell me about something they heard from my sermon that is completely not even what I said. So <laughs> I realized it's probably me, and I'm going to take responsibility for my faith. I'm going to take responsibility for my growth. I'm not going to leave that to some preacher. And so... I hope that's you too. I hope that when you come to church on Sunday, it's not your only time hearing about the Bible or reading the Bible. Um, I want you to fall in love with Scripture and have it be part of your life because God has left us three things to help us commune with Him and be in relationship with Him. So in the, it, when God created Adam and Eve and in the Genesis story, we have God and creation living in heaven, in the garden, in unity, with nothing dividing them. That's how we were intended to be. We're intended to live in harmony with God. And there's some imagery he uses, like being naked and unashamed. Like that freedom. We're not going to do that today. But as a metaphor, you kind of get that freedom to be completely exposed and be okay. Be completely trusting of God who sees all and knows all and just be at peace. And how they walked in the evening in the cool of the night. Like that is such a beautiful, it kind of gives us that emotion of what it means. And then that restoration is what the narrative of the, the Bible's about. Is as man has sinned and chosen to stray from God, his relentless pursuit of his people to restore us unto righteousness and restore us into right relationship with him. That's what heaven represents. And on earth, we're on this journey of getting there. That's called sanctification if we're growing, right? And so as we are growing, that's the goal, that's the dream. Anything you experience in your life that is grief, regret, fear, anxiety, depression, it's, an, it's, it's the expression of 
the separation from God that we feel. Something's not right in the world. There's injustice in the world. Um, my failure is making me feel guilt and shame. It's, it's all of that injustice is this longing for God and longing for heaven that we all have. And so God has left us three things to help us stay communi- in community with him, stay, um, stay in relationship with him. The first thing he's left us, this is all from the New Testament where Jesus expresses that he, when he ascended, he left the Holy Spirit for us. The Holy Spirit is ours to be our comforter, our advocate, our friend. Uh, uh, in, in Jeremiah 34, we get the, the, the conviction that the Holy Spirit is God's word written on our heart and our minds. Right? And so he has left us the Holy Spirit and so that is one way. The other way, one other thing he's left off is his church. So we have the church. We have one another, right? We are God's expression of love to each other and the world. That's our role. God's plan A, as he reveals in scripture, for bringing his kingdom to come to earth as it is in heaven, is his church. And he doesn't tell us what the plan B is. So when we love one another, when we share our gifts with one another, when we bear one another's burdens, when we forgive one another, we are expressing God's kingdom, God's values, God's priority, God's love on earth, just as it is in heaven. So we are part of that in God's churches. We need each other. We need each other's gifts. We're such a diverse group of people. We can do things that you ca- I can do things you can't do. You do things I can't do. We are all part of God's church. So he's left us that. And the third thing that he's left us is his word. God has left us his word. So we're going to talk about how to handle the Bible. Um, I thought about like, when I was writing this out, I was thinking about like, I could, t- I could start off with why study the Bible, but I felt like rather than talk about the lion, let's just unleash the lion and see what it does, right? So I'm going to equip you with just some concepts and ideas. You may know these, maybe you haven't, um, but... Um, the first thing I want to do when we talk about the Bible is just, this, this is more teaching time, but uh, how many Bible translations have you seen? I know in English there's a lot, in Spanish there's a lot, there's a lot of Bible translations. I think uh, Benji taught me that I think there's two primary Bible translations that are used, um, and then there's uh, a few different ones in Spanish. Um, in English, we have a lot of Bible translations that are used. Now, Keep in mind, my favorite saying is the best Bible translation, the very best Bible translation is the one you will read. That's the version, (laughs) the one you will read because the most important thing is that you spend time in the word, right? Now, what they typically do when they describe what Bible translations exist, they create a spectrum of word-for-word translation from Greek to thought for thought or idea for idea translation from Greek. And uh, the, the argument as to which Bible version is more accurate, and some people like stand to say, hey, the word for word is more accurate. Um, it, it's, it's not even a logical argument among scholars because even the Greek is translated from Hebrew and Aramaic. So if you're going to be that picky about that, then what about the original into the Greek, and we can't do that, right? So at the end of the day, we just have to trust the Spirit, and um, my, my vote on Bible translations is yes. 
and we use them all. They all have a different purpose. So for you may, in the English, you may see there's a NASB, which is one that I really like. I, I spent a lot of time on this early on in my faith um, because, to be honest, I was kind of being a little more legalistic and saying, well, it's word for word, so it's more accurate. But it's, I learned that it's way more confusing. And we'll talk about why in a moment. But NASB is a great one. And this is a Bible study, uh, a study Bible Heather got me, a Hebrew Greek study Bible, NASB. And uh, she got me that when we were first married. Um, or no, when Luke was born. And I love it. I use it a lot. Um, but so it starts like, this is one that would be more on the um, word for word. And then there's a spectrum of translations and it goes like to, to a paraphrase, a complete paraphrase. So on the paraphrase extreme would be the, the Bible translation or the, it's not even called a translation, it's an interpretation, but it's called the message. And it's written by a guy named Eugene Peterson. Now I love and respect Eugene Peterson as a pastor, as a theologian, as an author. I would love to sit in a room and have Eugene Peterson talk me through the Bible and from his perspective. But I don't look at the message as, as an authoritative translation of Scripture. I look at it and go, huh. So if I'm ever looking at this, looking at a pastor, I'm going, I, I don't quite get it. I go, what does Pastor Eugene say? What does he see in there? And it gives me another piece of information, not authoritative, but it helps me understand what he sees. And because I kind of know where he's coming from, it helps me. Um, it helps me and helps me expand Scripture. So on that broad spectrum, I use many different translations every week when I'm, um, when I'm preparing sermons and my personal study. I just use them all. Um, they, they're really helpful. And you, you find you kind of lean towards one when you don't have quite this right understanding. Um, this one is the NIV Study Bible. Now, I bought this. I was saved at 15, and I had saved up some money, and I went to the Bible bookstore, and I bought this NIV Study Bible, which was awesome. I really loved it. Um, I got really cheap and bought, didn't want to buy the leather-bound one, so I bought this one. And then I bought a really expensive leather cover to go over it. <laughs> um, I didn't really save money, but I felt frugal. Um, but I love this Bible. It's been meaningful to me. But uh, yeah, that's the NIV. Um, this is, uh, different study Bibles have different purposes, right? So this study Bible is a word-for-word Hebrew-Greek study Bible. So it gives you the Greek and the words and the roots and stuff. Sometimes that's helpful. This NIV study Bible teaches more about cross-referencing um, passages from one book to an Old Testament reference or when something's taught in a couple places. This has been my favorite personal study Bible. Um, this is called the C.S. Lewis Bible. And this is throughout all of the, it's a regular Bible, but when the author of a book brings up a point that C.S. Lewis also writes about, they insert an article from C.S. Lewis there. And those of you who know me, know me, I know I have a borderline unhealthy relationship with C.S. Lewis. <laughs> um, so I really love this one. It really helps me. So I just want to encourage you when it comes to Bible versions, Bible translations, um, get one that you'll read. We have them for, there's Bibles for all ages. And just to be honest, my kids were little. We read this to them all the time. And uh, some of my biggest aha moments theologically came from reading this to my kids. So I encourage you, like, don't think reading a, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And of all the kids' Bibles, like, this is the one, like, wow, the theology's still there. It's awesome. So I encourage you with this um, for our teens. 
that love these uh, graphic novels, we give out the Action Bible because the most important version is the or the most the best version is the one they'll read, right? And we want them to engage with Scripture. And then we have a teen study Bible. So, and if you don't have a Bible, please come and take one of those. Those are for you. Um, so that's a little bit on Bible versions, translation, or, uh, um, and tools that are there. So um, I also use commentaries, um, but I think for your personal devotion, just spending time, start with spending time in the Word. And uh, if I could be a little directive, read a book at a time. Don't bounce around. Pick one book and stay in the lane of what that author is saying the whole time you're reading that book. And that book will come alive to you. It's when we start to bounce around and we start to assume this author's point is this author's point. So a couple con concepts I wanted to teach. And to be honest, I really struggled with whether or not this was a sermon. But as a pastor, my heart is for you is I want you to love scripture. And these are things that really helped me. So I'm going to teach them and just see what God does in your heart with it. But one of the things that I learned in uh, my Bible courses and Bible uh, education is the idea of exegesis. Now, exegesis does not mean used to be Jesus. Uh, exegesis is a, it describes a way to study any historical text. It's not just the Bible. It's any historical text where you are trying to learn the original intent of the author to the audience in their context, where you're, you're, you're un trying to understand why was this letter written, who wrote it, to whom, and what was the relationship of them. And that, that gives you this, this context and this idea. Now, most of the time when we're reading scripture, we're only reading one side of the story. Like if, if you look at Paul's epistles, his letters to churches, we're just seeing Paul's response to a church but Paul was responding to a report he got from the church, which we don't have. We don't see that. We just see Paul's response to the churches. And so we can infer and assume what the concerns were because Paul gets very specific in his letters to the churches as to what he's talking about. And the thing to keep in mind is that Paul's letters and all the scripture was written down in a time, in a place, to a person, from another person, they had a relationship, there was an issue they were talking about, and none of those are in Adair Village in 2022 and involve you. And so it's important that we realize the Bible was written for us, but it was never written to us. So why that's important is we need to look at Scripture and say, what is going on here? Why, why is this preserved for us today? And my preaching professor, Don Sanukian, calls it the timeless truth. What is the timeless truth that's in this story that we can apply today? And when you do the exegesis, you, you're navigating to find what is the universal truth that the author is writing and expressing. And then we get into another word I want to teach you called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is taking that timeless truth and carefully finding a way to apply it to us today. Right? And that's where the art of preaching, exegetical preaching comes in, is that we're trying to be on, honor that truth that, that the scripture is preserving for us today. And then 
help apply it to, to our life. You could probably think of a lot of stories. I think of the writings of David in the Psalms. Now, I'm going to teach you another word you probably already know. If you think about movies or literature or even um, any type of artistic expression, it's the word genre. The Bible has different genres. The Bible isn't one book with one genre. It's 66 books. Some of it is poetry. Some of it is historical narrative telling a story of what happened. Some of it is allegory. Some of it is hyperbole and extreme stories to prove a point. But we, we, don't, we don't do that in the real world. Like we have musicians that we love and we go listen to their art and their poetry and their music. Like I grew up in the 80s and 90s in Seattle, so I was all into grunge music. And boy, those guys were singing stuff that was so emotional and it got me and I had no idea what words they were saying. And I'm not looking to them to tell me the history of what happens in music. I'm not looking to them to explain to me in their song the chord structure that they're using to make these chords on their guitar. And I'm not looking to them to describe the historical narrative of their band. Like, this is, this is uh, poetry and art, and I'm, and I'm looking for an emotion. And so when we read the Psalms, we realize this is poetry. This is David and... Uh, going through just his honest life and wrestling with God. And when David writes these things, I, I, one thing I love about David is if you take a section of David's writings and just where he's lamenting, you would, it would, if you just pulled that out and just said, this is David, he'd be a heretic because he questions God. He challenges God's existence. He challenges God's goodness and kindness. He challenges God's presence. And then later you'll see he's declaring his praises, declaring that God is almighty, all good, and all powerful. When I look at that, one of the timeless truths I pull out of all the Psalms and David's writings is he was honest before God. He had the courage to be honest because if I'm honest, I do the same thing. I question God. I, I, I get frustrated and, and then I... There's a process that happens and, a, and a, a, a healing and a restoration. And then I just kind of come to my own resolve and worship and praise him and thank him. And I think if we're honest, we go through hard times in life and we wonder, where is God? Why am I going through this? And then when we resolve that he is good, he is God, this is bigger than me. Um, one of the things I teach our staff is when we're helping someone go through something, it's two things you got to look for. One, the answer is always Jesus and not in a churchy way, like listen for how the answer to whatever the issue is Jesus. And the second one as it relates to this is that help people lift their eyes up higher on the horizons. Because when you and I are obsessed about and lamenting about something that's really wrong, it's because we're focused on it. And we're staring at it. And we can't see the rest of the world around us. All we see is the thing we're afraid of. And when we lift our eyes up, we start to see the, the beauty around us, the people around us, the people that are willing to help and support us. But if all we focus is on that thing, we'll say, I'm all alone. Nobody's here. Nobody cares. Wait a minute. Let's keep our eyes up. Keep our eyes up. And to play that metaphor, like keep our eyes up all the way to heaven which is the ultimate taking away of our reason for fear. We don't need to fear death. So then we don't need to fear life. And then we can find peace. 
when David laments like that, he's expressing this honesty of that whole trajectory of that process. And David's called a man after God's own heart. And I believe it's because he's honest. It's why I love the name Jacob. It's why I named my son Jacob. Um, because Jacob in the Old Testament, he's one that wrestled with God. Do you know how much trust you have to have in God to argue with him? Like, I love that. Because to me, that's just honest. So when we're looking at David and the, and the poetry that he writes, just re- that's a timeless truth that we can pull out of David's writings and say, boy, it sure makes sense to me that what pleases God the most is that we're just real and honest with him. And then you start to read the scripture through that lens and say, oh, I see why Jesus is preaching against the super religious. I see how he's preaching to say, hey, don't just pray empty prayers and fill it with empty words. Just be honest. And I go, oh, that's the timeless truth I got from the poetry of David. You see? And then it applies to us today. Another genre to look at is historical narrative. There's some things in the Bible that are telling stories about things and people that actually happened and existed and events that happened. Now, in a historical narrative, we're not looking for instruction because you may look for instruction in the middle of a historical narrative. In a historical narrative, it talks about how someone, typically here's the arc, someone starts out good, they do something really bad, there's consequences and drama, and and then there's a climax, and then there's some type of resolution where God intervenes. But if all you do is you insert yourself in the narrative and look for instruction in the middle of the narrative, you're going to get bad advice. It's a really easy way to get bad advice from the Bible if, if, if you just grab a verse and take it out of context. So if we look at the narrative, now there's, there's a, a one-liner that can help you is that there's, there's two types of categories you can put the Bible in. One is prescriptive and the other is descriptive. There are some writings that are prescriptive, right? They're very directive. The Proverbs are the, the wisdom writings. That's another genre. You can get just very direct, and the book of James is considered that. You can get very direct instruction, and you don't have to do a lot of hermeneutical effort to figure out how to apply it, right? But then, in the historical narrative, you have pre- or descriptive. It's just describing something that happened, and there's a, there's a truth in the story that is for us today. The other genres are the Gospels, the, the Epistles. Prophecy is a, um, is a, uh, a genre. Um, some people add the apocalyptic writings as a second genre. Most uh, just lump that in with prophecy um, because you kind of treat those the same as you're approaching them. But the point is, when you're reading scripture, consider the genre. What is the intent of the author in writing this? So I hope that helps you. Um, now, we talked about exegesis. Within exegesis, there's context, historical context, literary context. We talked about that. We talked about hermeneutics, prescriptive, descriptive. Okay, remember the three things that God has given us because at the end of the day, as, as a pastor, I want you to live every day with the awareness that you're in a relationship with God. And there's three things that God has given us so we can do that. Do you remember? One is the Holy Spirit. The alive and real, comforting, encouraging, advocating, convicting us today. Two is the church. We need each other. Not one of us is equipped to navigate this life alone. We're not equipped, we're not intended to, and God didn't leave us to. He's given us the church. And the third thing he's given us is scripture. 
as you intentionally craft your life and your days to spend time in those things, invest time in those things, you will find that you will grow closer to the Lord every day. And that's my hope and prayer for you uh, and me. This, this has been a good reminder for me too. Uh, my hope is that you grow in maturity, courage, wisdom, that you would allow yourself to be healed. Healing happens when you spend time in those three things. Um, and I hope and pray that the, the power of Scripture is unleashed in your life. And just like any relationship, you have to ask yourself, do you want a relationship with God? Every relationship you have requires time together. You can't really have a relationship with anyone that's meaningful unless there is purposeful time together. And these are ways that we can spend time with God. When you're alone, get the word. Spend time with him. Get together with other people, other believers. Spend time meditating on the word. Find a way to take the Holy Spirit in us and take it out to the world. Serve somewhere together. And you'll find that you will grow in your relationship with God, which is the end of the day, why I do what I do, why, we're, why our staff is here, why we gather, why we teach, is so you grow. So, and you can only grow if you spend time with the Lord. I don't want you to be like I was. I don't want you to spend 20 years in church and not grow. It's a waste. And it's part of my unction to take something that's like, like this and, well, let's make this a sermon. Because some of these things are like really revolutionary to me, eye-opening to me, to help me handle Scripture in a right way. Intelligently, too. Because, uh, you know, I, I think, I don't know if we all have, but I went through a season of life where I looked at Scripture and went, okay, God, what do you want to show me today? Like, and then you get into Kings and there's a story about this bald man who calls a bear to kill children. Like, great, how do I apply that? Is that prescriptive? Huh. <laughs> yes. Respect bald people. Yeah. Oh, I'm not bald anymore. <laughs> Sorry. No disrespect intended. I. All right. Um, I want to ask the band to come back up, and we're going to do something. It's another thing that is a tradition that uh, Jesus introduced to us and gave us that when we gather, we are going to take communion together. And uh, I'm going to ask you to join in taking communion with me today. And, and what communion represents, and it's in the word, communion. We have a common union. We're unified in Christ. Those of us who have received Jesus as our Savior, we want to grow in him. We want to pursue him with our life. We want to be his expression of love to the world around us. As we are doing that, we're going to realize we need each other. We need each other. We need to be in each other's lives. We need to encourage each other. Um, so when we do this, it's a declaration of unity that we're unified and we're unified in Christ. And that's what keeps us together with each other and with Jesus. You know, Jesus has the longest prayer recorded in Scripture is in the book of John. And Jesus 
is praying to God that his church would be unified. He didn't say that God let them all agree on things. It said that they would be unified. And so when we take communion together, we are just declaring we are, we're bound together in Christ, to Christ, by Christ, and we are his church.